Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. As I, I said, this evening's uh, topic uh, is, uh, is the uh, presentation by Devin and, and Craig Hasse on their uh, new book, How, to, How Not to Be a Hot Mess, which is really um, a contemporary hip version of ethical life, acting with integrity, the uh, sila in, uh, in the teachings, in uh, the five precepts, uh, and I'll let them share more about it in uh, in a few moments but as we as we do when uh, she's here um want to invite eve decker singer songwriter dharma teacher um to uh, share some thoughts and uh, a song on uh, on the topic if you if you would eve great to see you hi great to be back hi devon Hi, Craig. Welcome to you both. I'm excited to hear your hear about your book. It's wonderful. And um, I thought to usher in your book talk, I would sing a song that I wrote for the family programs for Spirit Rock and East Bay Meditation Center about the five precepts, but rewritten for families. And it's called Five Things to Do. And when we do it with kids, we have all these hand motions that use the five fingers and stuff, but you can imagine. Kindness makes me happy and it makes you happy too. And so I want to remember there are five things to do. Kindness makes me happy, and it makes you happy too. And so I want to remember there are five things to do. If it's living, treat it gently. Don't take what's not given to me. Respect bodies and boundaries, including my own. Tell the truth kindly, tell the truth kindly, and choose healthy things to eat and drink to keep me clear and strong. Because kindness makes me happy, and it makes you happy too. And so I want to remember there are five things to do. Great. <laughs> Good way to remember precepts and lead an ethical life for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so let me introduce uh, Devin and Craig. I've known them for a uh, number of years now. Uh, it's been a pleasure to 
know them and, and spend time with them. Um, very committed uh, practitioners who can write a hip contemporary book on, on, uh, on sila, on ethics at the same time. Devin is in the um, current Insight Meditation Society uh, teacher training with uh, Joseph Goldstein and, uh, and uh, various other teachings. Um, Craig uh, has uh, I think spent six years in a Zen monastery or uh, something like that and has a PhD in, in, uh, in counseling uh, and uh, also very committed serious practitioner. They were, they were in the middle of a long-term intensive practice period uh, I think Greg was going to be going for like a couple of years or something like that. Um, and Devin is going for a year or so. And then, uh, and then the virus hit and things change. So they are still doing a lot of practice living in a Tibetan uh, monastery up in Ashland, Oregon, uh, but also doing a lot of teaching at the same time. So what, it wasn't quite the intensive solitary practice that, they had planned, but um, life had other plans for them. Uh, there were also, um, uh, besides students uh, and teachers in the Insight Meditation um, community, uh, they are uh, students of Mingyur Rinpoche and uh, have done a lot of Tibetan practice. Um, so they, they bring um, a whole um, uh, rich uh, texture of uh, Buddha Dharma uh, to their teaching. So enough said about that. Uh, so good to have you both. And maybe uh, if you start off, um, I'm curious, maybe you'd like to tell people uh, what, what made you write a book about this and uh, share, share with everyone. Um, and uh, I'll just hand it over to you. Maybe I'll ask a question or two if it, if it comes up and then we can open it up to everyone. So. Devin and Craig, so nice to have you. Thank you so much, James. I'm just, I'm actually sitting here with some tears. Um, Eve, your beautiful music just really touched my heart. I remember that song and I, re, I was singing it with you and just really missing you and the sense of community that your songs always leave. Um, and really honored to be here. Thank you, James, for having us and for that beautiful introduction. And um, it's so interesting with Zoom, you know, it's a flat screen and there's these little postage sides boxes, but my heart really opens and feels so much joy just seeing your faces, your bright faces. And so good to see you, Jane. And I'm recognizing other familiar faces, maybe from Spirit Rock and around the Bay Area. Um, anyway, just feeling humbled and touched to be here with you this evening. So um, yeah, my heart is glad seeing you all. <sighs> so yeah, we can talk about our book. I think Craig and I wanted to just open by telling some stories and, and also really hearing from you. You know, what is up for you? What's interesting? What's um, curious in your practice, in your hearts, in your minds? So we're hoping to have some community interaction here as well. 
Um, as James mentioned, we are living right now in Ashland, Oregon. It's originally Latgawa territory. So the people of the uplands lived here before white people came. And it's quite a beautiful valley. Many of you might have been here to Ashland before. I was born here. And um, we're right now living in this Tibetan temple. So it's quite an interesting sort of uh, landing place. We didn't expect to be here right now. Uh, we've, we've been in a year of retreat, as James said. We took monastic vows with our teacher, Minga Rinpoche, almost 13 months ago. And so we were living with a certain uh, experience of the precepts for 12 months. And then, and then in June, we gave back our uh, celibacy precept. So our retreat has changed um, just slightly. And we can talk about that a bit if it's interesting. Um, but we're still doing about half-time retreat and half-time teaching here. So yeah, maybe I'll tell the story about the birth of this book and then turn it over to Craig. Um, we're both writers. And interestingly, in retreat is often when our most creative inspiration hits. And so Craig was doing an eight month retreat post um, graduate school. We had been living in Madison, Wisconsin for five years, which is actually where we met James because he comes and teaches the Madison Sangha frequently. And so we did an awakening joy retreat with him. And um, we were both teaching quite a lot in the schools and the hospitals and sort of secular spaces and appreciating all the work that's doing i mean doing in madison wisconsin it's sort of this hub for all kinds of amazing research on meditation and mindfulness our friend and mentor dr richie davidson has done a lot of sort of cutting edge work and so his we were part of rolling out his studies in the schools and the hospitals but what we found is that in the secular realm, there's a lot of interest in meditation, a lot of interest in the benefits of this practice. But we never really talk specifically about the precepts and about what does integrity mean? What does goodness mean, actually? And for us, being such dedicated Buddhists, realizing, you know, this is the foundation. We can't really be mindful if we're not considering integrity and values and guidelines that we want to live our lives by, like honesty and clarity and kindness, generosity. So post uh, PhD, Craig was doing an eight month retreat. I was sort of flitting around teaching and, and doing other things. And he was busy brainstorming ideas for this book. And I think it was in conjunction with these, with our editors at Shambhala, where it was originally supposed to be a really more political, uh, pretty spicy uh, critique of our current times. And Craig maybe can say more about that. But it, it turned into this kind of playful uh, rendition of the precepts. We were working a lot with young people and we were interested in how do we talk about goodness? and integrity in a way that's not moralistic, that's not shaming, that's not, you know, the sort of like rule following. This is more like, how do we tap into the inspiration of a life well lived, of a life that's meaningful and in alignment with what I care about? You know, there's so much research we were involved with in Madison about how to really tap into our intentions and how intentions sustain us. 
So in the face of empathy fatigue and lots of burnout in schools, in college, in graduate schools and helping professions, staying connected to our good intentions and what we really are living for and why, that's so inspiring and so uplifting. And so that's really the message that we wanted to offer in this fun, really hot pink kind of loud book is that the precepts can be fun. You know, we can enjoy getting to know our own heart's goodness. And this is such an essential part of practice, whether we're Buddhist or not. You know, this can be a very secular discussion. And we're hoping to add this piece to the wider mainstream movement um, because we felt it was missing. So that's a little bit of the backstory. And there's all kinds of things that happen as we wrote it together, right? We're married, we did this project together, we're launching the book together, mostly on Zoom. Um, it's been quite an adventure. But maybe I'll let Craig say a bit more. Sure, thank you. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to sit back and hear <laughs> and hear the story, uh, our our story. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll mute them. Mm, maybe I want to talk a little. I'll take a step back. You know, just we're all getting to know each other here. I know a couple of you, but a lot of you I don't know. As I was walking over here, it's this beautiful evening up here in Ashland, Oregon. I was walking home from the co-op where I bought a few things. and The sun was dipping behind these clouds and there was these kinds of these shafts of light that were shining yellow and uh, sort of clear white light on the hillside. And I was thinking, uh, I was feeling so delighted and grateful just to be alive. Nothing's happening except that I'm walking, carrying a small grocery bag. And I, I was walking, carrying my small grocery bag, looking at the sun, feeling the air in my skin and feeling um, gratitude, just gratitude. How wonderful. And that reminded me of what, what brought me to practice in the first place, what I think brings a lot of us to practice in the first place, which is some version of dissatisfaction or pain or anxiety. So when I was 16 years old, I also I remember a very similar moment. Uh, I had just gotten my license and I had this little kind of baby blue two-door hatchback Hyundai with a bunch of dents in it. And um, it was it was a stick shift, it was four speeds. You couldn't, if you floored it on the highway, you could get to like 75 miles per hour. And I drove it to uh, this lookout point above the Hudson River. My parents lived in Westchester and I, I was living with them, with my dad and my stepmom. I drove it to the Hudson River and I was there in the afternoon at sunset and the light was streaming down over the water. And I had this moment of seeing the beauty and not being touched. 
and feeling this kind of despair. It felt to me as if there were this plexiglass that, it, that stood between me and the Hudson River with this beautiful light streaming down onto it. And there was no getting across the divide. Somehow the world was out there and I was in here. And this, this in here was turmoil. Even though I was sitting next to the Hudson River, alone, beautiful, beautiful evening, looking out, I wasn't, I wasn't touched by it. And I remember thinking, this, there's something wrong here. Uh, there, there has to be another way of being. And, you know, there's a long story about how I got to that point and uh, it wasn't only me, there was a lot of external circumstances that had shut me down. And it was very shortly after that that I read my first Dharma book. It was by Joseph Goldstein, who's to this day one of my main influences and, and Dharma teachers, and set me on this path because Joseph, in his book, Insight Meditation, which is the book that I read, he starts you know, with this sense of dissatisfaction, dukkha. And when I read that at 16 years old, I thought, that's what that is. That's what that moment is. If that moment of plexiglass, that moment of painful separation is exactly what Joseph is talking about here. And then the whole rest of the book is Joseph laying out the path. So it's not only that suffering exists, but that there's a path out of suffering. And so I was like, as only maybe a 16-year-old can, I was completely hooked from day one. Like, like, this is my jam. This is what I will do. And so I found a teacher and I started going on these retreats. And I came back from my first weekend retreat and I told my parents, this is what I will do for the rest of my life. And they were like, yeah, you said, about, you said that about 12 things in the last 12 weeks. So, okay, great. Because I was 16, but I was, so, I was so jazzed, you know, being on retreat, having these experiences of like deeper levels of satisfaction. I remember the first time I really saw a flower, that kind of thing. Like nothing's happening, but everything is beautiful. And so after that, I, I started doing all these long retreats like, you know, Devin was talking about where, you know, by the time I finished college, I'd done a five month retreat and three two months retreats. And then I, I started to try to get a job and have a career, but realized what I really wanted to be doing was meditating. So then I moved into that Zen monastery and I stayed there for six years. And then even through grad school, several times I was almost thrown out of grad school for doing long retreats. My program was not, I wasn't popular with my program. I kept like disappearing. Um, but I just find this practice like endlessly satisfying and um, delightful, frankly, just like delightful. Which is not to say that I didn't have completely hellish experiences on retreat, especially early retreat I did and daily practice too. But there's even that to me felt so meaningful to me and still does those points where I really hit my edge in practice feel so meaningful to me. And I think just in terms of the book, um, 
I brought all of that enthusiasm. And then I was, te I was as when I was a graduate student in University of Wisconsin, I was teaching an undergraduate class called Psychology of Mindfulness, which started out as a rigorous academic class and quickly degenerated into community. Right? It's like we were supposed to be studying all these hardcore studies and doing all this stuff. But what we really ended up doing was meditating and talking about what was alive in our hearts. <laughs> And that, like getting to really hear from undergraduates the level of anxiety that they were experiencing, the sense that the world had spun off its axis, that everything was out of control, that they had no idea how to live their lives in a way that felt like it had integrity. Um, yeah, that's another place where this book came from. It's like these conversations, these really genuine, authentic conversations with younger people who are, who are quite frightened actually of the way the world is and wanna know like, how can I be alive in this world? So that's a little more, a little more introduction to just to us, to me, to the book. And Devin and I wanted to um, get a little bit, we kind of wanted to uh, harvest, if that's okay, a little bit from you all just uh, what would be helpful? Um, and we love the chat function in Zoom, Devin and I. We use the chat function all the time. So if you want to just type in, now, of course, if 46 people type in something that would be helpful, we won't get to all 46 in the next 25 minutes or 30 minutes. But even if 30 people type something in, it's so interesting to see all of them. And then we'll, Devin and I will pick a few maybe to talk about. So if you could, if you have a keyboard handy or you want to type in with your thumbs on your phone or whatever works for you, what would be helpful? What would be helpful to hear about tonight? What's in your heart? What's on your mind? Maybe what are your questions? For yourself, you know, like, what are you pondering right now? Or what's alive in you right now? Yeah, and you can do it to me privately, and I'll read it out loud, but I won't say your name. Or you can do it to everyone publicly, and I'll read it out loud, and I maybe will say your name. So somebody is saying to me privately. Uh, oh, no, where's my pen? Here it is. Uh, what about the days when it's just not there. The, the body can't be felt. It seems outside of mindfulness, how to go back. Yeah, great, great question. I'm gonna write some of these down. And then the next question was, uh, or the next one was, what you just shared was deeply engaging and lovely to hear from you. How honest. That was, that's very nice, thank you. <laughs> and then another one, FYI, doesn't look like everyone is an option for the chat, only private chat. That's why they're all coming in privately. How important is daily practice versus retreats? Great. Mm -hmm. And then here's another one. Um, what is the most useful thing to do in my few remaining productive years? Whoa, I like that very much. 
Here's another one that was sent to me, uh, mm -hmm. but, but I'm sending it now to you. Mm -hmm. uh, Great. How to live when the earth systems are collapsing and we are part of this earth. Yes, yes. Thank you. That question has been very much alive in me lately. What is the order to study Buddhist philosophy and teaching? <laughs> like in what order, I'm guessing, in what order should we take study? Mm -hmm. Great. Susan, I have one too. Um, Great. Privately, um, from a burned out social worker looking to find a different way to live and make a living and then mm. asking a bit about our life how do we make a living how do we make it work mm. from which retreat that's a really good question mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah great great so, so again topics yeah we these are each one of these is so rich and so um has so much depth that we'll, we'll just hit on a couple of them. So here's another one. My health and life is very good, as is my partner. And in what ways may I be helpful in the world right now? Mm. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. And another one, how do we bring practice to the secular duality of the world without preaching dogma? Mm. Really good question. Yeah. These are great, okay. And, uh, Okay, how to balance working and living in the world and living a spiritual life. Welcome to the crux of my koan. That is like, <laughs> that has been my burning question, the red hot ball that I cannot swallow and I cannot spit out for the last 25 years. So yeah, we'll answer that one real quick, just knock it off. Yeah, how to balance working and living in the world. Okay, if anyone has one that's really hot, send it in, but we're gonna, we're gonna start talking about all these fun things. Mm, I have another one. Great. Yeah, how to hold the political horrors of missing leadership and to embrace grief and loneliness in this beautiful world of birds and flowers and love. Whew, that's another koan I've been sitting with. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sweet. Okay, so we've got so many good ones here. Oh my goodness. And Devin and I are just going to start, um, we're going to do a little jazz, you know, we're going to do a little sort of improvisation on some of these and um, just see what comes alive in us while we're with you. So there's one about like the dull days, right? The body can't be felt. There's one about um, daily life versus retreat. There's one about the useful thing to do in your remaining productive years. 
what about earth systems collapsing? In what order should we study Buddhist philosophy? And then the burned out social worker, how do we, um, how do we, I can't even read my own handwriting, but how do we make a shift and do something helpful for ourselves in the world? How may I be helpful in the world is the next one. How do we bring practice to the world with no dogma? How do we balance working and living in the world with the Dharma? And how do we deal with the political horrors, the grief and the loneliness in this beautiful, beautiful world of birds and flowers? Devin, do you wanna kick it off? I have so much to say, but I, you know what I really love is, would you answer that first question about the dull days? Me? I would love to hear your answer to that one. Yeah. Oh, wow, good. Way to kick it back. <laughs> the dull days. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what about the days when it's just not there? The body can't be felt. It seems outside of mindfulness and how to come back. Hmm, maybe let's just do a really brief meditation together. So you don't need to have a special posture and you don't need to be a special meditator and you don't need to do anything in particular. So however you are right now, maybe just if you feel comfortable, close your eyes. And drop a kind of warm awareness into your heart. Just right here, however you are, you could drop a warm awareness, a kind attention into this location, this location of your heart, your living heart. And now whatever you find here This is what's alive. And it's welcome. Genuinely, genuinely welcome. So if what you find here is grief, then this grief is really authentically welcome. Awareness has room for this grief. And if what you find here is joy, then it's no need to shy from joy. It's really welcome. And this awareness has room for joy. And if what you find here is dullness, it's just not a vibrant day. then this is what's alive. Dullness is a sensation. Dullness is something that I can welcome in, make room for, put out the red carpet. This dullness is really, truly allowed. This is the living expression of this body, this nervous system, this organism right now. Doesn't need to be different. Doesn't need to be better. 
It doesn't need to change. And I can be with this dullness for as long as it's alive in me. The kind of um, loving patience. Whether I like it or I don't like it, it's just welcome here. Yeah, maybe you could take a deep breath, let it out. Open your eyes, come back to the community, see everybody, hello. So that's how I work with my dullness, uh, which is very similar to how I work with my grief, which is very similar to how I work with my anger. <laughs> that's what's most interesting to me in my practice right now. You know, there are these many, many beautiful techniques and antidotes that we can use in the Dharma, and I fully support the use of those. But for me in my practice, this is my, um, this is my favorite right now. It's just like, making room for whatever's here for as long as it's here with a total welcoming awareness. So that's my answer to that one. All right, Devin, to you. Yeah, we're having a siren go by. I don't know if you all can hear that. There's some background noise. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I would bridge that then to the question about the grief and horror of the political situation in a world that has birds and flowers and love. Um, in some ways, I think that question answers itself. But similarly to what Craig was inviting us into, holding ourselves with a warm awareness, even if our body feels outside of things, we feel separate from things, there's a kind of dullness tapping into awareness that is big enough to hold it all. We can find that in our hearts. For me, I'm finding that in nature a lot. So just somehow putting my body in a place with trees, if we can do that, we're lucky enough to do that. Um, maybe with a creek or some grass on the earth and allowing the earth around me also to hold. So, you know, so much of my practice nowadays is really noting like negative thought after negative thought after negative thought. <laughs> it's amazing how the mind just, wow, it keeps going back there. And there's a lot to be negative about. There's so much in the collective field right now, grief and horror. Some of it actually really appropriate. Maybe it's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, but quite a lot for this system to hold. So just allowing like, oh, nature, in some ways it's like the earth's metta, you know, the ability for trees and water and the earth to kind of hold it with us, something bigger than us. I've really been relying quite a lot on nature as a kind of refuge. Just feeling like, wow, such deep equanimity, you know, the trees rooted down into the earth, um, the way that the light shines on the leaves, regardless of what's happening you know light has always been shining on leaves and kind of sparkling and allowing just the bigness of things to hold my little sort of tight clenched heart you know in all of its difficulties so that's been one way yeah my practice i wanted to just touch on also gosh this question around how do we most serve you know, how do we use our time in a good way? How do we contribute? Man, that is such a heartfelt question, <laughs> you know, and it's so much so uncertain often. 
I remember when I was just getting into meditation, I was a sophomore in college and I was really into service learning. I was doing a lot of volunteering and a lot of like out in the community. And we had this kind of community of volunteers and we all sat down and there was this list of 50 actions. There was like going to Africa and helping folks with some kind of disease, working in clinics in Africa, um, giving food out on the streets, um, building the newest kind of technology, um, going away to meditate in a cave, uh, taking care of your elderly parents. There's like all these like 50 different actions. And what we were supposed to do was rate them in terms of like the most service and the least service. And it was such an interesting exercise because I was a meditator, right? I was like, go away to a cave, meditate, get enlightened so I can help everybody else. <laughs> that was like the list off of my list. I was the only one, right? That was like in the bottom of number 50 for everybody else. Why is that with that service? And it, that continues to be, you know, the really interesting, beautiful paradox of this practice is that that can be deep, deep service. You know, there can also be total engagement the way that we usually think about, you know, social service and wow, now we need it more than ever. And I think for white people doing all kinds of study and education and reading right now and talking to other white people about systemic privilege, you know, and white supremacy, this is really important right now. So there's all different ways. I think this is in some ways the ways we get to be creative with our practice. You know, and our book is about like knowing what we're about, like what is good and what do we like, why do we care about it so much? And once our compass is kind of pointed in that direction, you know, like, oh, I really care a lot about kindness. Then in some ways that's our compass. Then we can just align whatever we're doing, thoughts, words, actions, right in alignment with that. I really care about generosity. Okay, let's find all the different ways that I can be generous today with my time, with my heart, with my mind, you know? So that's kind of a beautiful part about what we're living through right now is like, let's be creative about all the different ways that this particular unique human system can be of service, can help. And there's no one answer that's gonna be different for each of us. So I find some, some energy in that, like, oh, maybe I don't have to have the answer, but can I get be really interested in my own mindfulness practice about how I want to help you today? Yeah, that's what I'd say to that one. Okay. How are we doing so far? Is everybody all right? Hmm. Good. I want to talk a little bit about balancing working and living in the world with a living spiritual life, living a spiritual life. So like I said, for me, there's this phrase in Zen, uh, the red hot iron ball that you cannot swallow and you cannot spit out. And that's a positive, supposedly. <laughs> it doesn't sound pleasant. And I think the image is very apt because when you have that experience of an unresolvable paradox or an unresolvable tension, 
it's very uncomfortable. And for me, this, this has been the unresolvable tension. I have tried, and even if I manage to resolve it, then it's temporary. So I think the, the first piece that I would say, just, just the lead in is take it one day at a time. You know, take, take a uh, tip from Bill W. <laughs> and take it one day at a time. Because this question will likely never be fully resolved. This is the kind of open question and a question that is held openly that you have to live the answer. Right? It's not that you just figure it out and then, okay, you just do that for the rest of your life. And it's like you're hanging out on the beach drinking pina coladas. If it resolves that easily for you, then it's not that level of a koan question. Right? And then probably you have some other question that has this, this kind of fire to it. And so for me, you know, um, when I was 19 years old, I did a five month meditation retreat, right? So I took time off of college. I went to my T, I, I, I was studying with a guy who was um, totally unknown. You know, he, he had been in IMS in the 1970s, took off, did his own long retreat, opened uh, his own center in his farmhouse in upstate New York and sort of like the dairy country near Binghamton, New York. Nobody knew this guy. He never advertised. You had to have like word of mouth to even know he existed. And so people would go and do these long retreats at his house uh, with his family. And you'd have food and a place to sleep. And um, I spent a lot of time meditating there. It's a tiny meditation room. Like it was just a converted attic space that was in an old farmhouse. And during that five month meditation retreat, I, I had a number of insights that were really very important for me. And, and one of them, which it was like one of these downloads that comes from on high and just drops in, was uh, what I really wanna do is the Dharma full time. That was number one. This is all I wanna do. I'm not interested in anything else. That was true for me. Number two, the only people who get to do this full time, at least in my mind, are Dharma teachers. That was number two. And I'm 19 years old, right? Number three, I will have nothing to offer in the Dharma until I am at least 40. So I'm then counting back, like, what do I do with the next 21 years of my life? All I want to do is the Dharma. I don't, nobody's going to want to listen to the Dharma for me because I, have no, I, I haven't integrated it at all. I'm 19 years old. So now what do I do? And that, that was an, a living question for me for years. So I'd like come off that five month retreat, come back into college. Everybody around me is just like partying like mad, you know, like it's the apocalypse. You know, and I'm sitting there in the dorm. There's all these drunk stone people all around me. And I'm like meditating at 11 o'clock at night with like 
disco music thumping on both sides of me, like where, I mean, what planet am I living on, you know? Then I graduate from college, try to get a job, but I can't keep my job because I always want to go on retreat. So I'd like get a job, stay for six to nine months, quit my job, go on a three month retreat, come back, get another job. And the job was like painting houses or waiting tables or whatever I could line up until the next time, until I could save enough money to go on retreat again, right? So I went back and forth, back and forth. Uh, I did that for four years after college. And then I thought, this is crazy. Oh no, then I realized there's monasteries. This was a revelation for me because I had been in a totally secular Vipassana community. Whoa, there are monastics in the world. So I just like went to a monastery. The first monastery I found was a Zen monastery. I cut all the hair off, just went, put on the black robes and stayed for six years. I thought, okay, I resolved the issue, right? Now it's, it was, and it was pretty uh, holistic. The whole world for me was just Dharma. Everything you do from the way you cook to the way you walk across the room to the way you lay your head down at the pillow at, at night is Dharma. But then of course life keeps moving and this living organism keeps developing. And then at some point I couldn't stay in the monastery anymore. So then I had to leave. And then I was 31 years old with no marketable skills. And I had my first serious holy shit moment of like, there is a, an economy and there are winners and losers in the economy and I am a loser. <laughs> like I am in trouble financially. And so the only thing I could think to do was go to grad school. So I just did that. And then I became a therapist and it turned out to be this wonderful thing that I fell completely head over heels for like, oh my gosh, I can be a therapist. But that didn't resolve the tension. Cause as I said, as I was in, in, in uh, graduate school, I kept disappearing on my program to go into these long retreats. And then I'd come out and get like, put on a development plan by my program because I wasn't committed. Because <laughs> I was too committed to the Dharma. <laughs> so the way, uh, the current way that we're attempting to resolve this tension is by being in retreat 50% of the time and then teaching and mentoring 50% of the time. This is, this is our current attempt. So we meditate every morning until 11 o'clock in the morning. So like we do a morning meditation in silence, we eat breakfast in silence, then we meditate until 11 o'clock in the morning. Then we do a work day from 11 in the morning till five in the afternoon, in which we're mostly mentoring one-on-one. -on -one. So we have, a, we have mentees that we talk to on the phone. And that's how we primarily make our living. So it's all sort of global from people all over the world and all over the country, Skype and phone. And that's how we make enough money. We live in a temple, so it's very inexpensive, simple living. And then we meditate again, starting at six o'clock in the evening until we go to bed at nine or 10 at night. So this is our, this sounds so sweet, right? It is so hard. Every day is, there's this tension 
between the world and practice. I thought we'd finally worked it out, like we'd finally resolved it. But the world is like a bowl that keeps, have you heard those old Kool-Aid commercials where like, that, like the Kool-Aid man like crashes through the wall? Maybe you don't, maybe that's only if you're like an early Gen Xer, but it's like the world just keeps crashing our party again and again and again. So it's like constantly threatening our meditation time. And then our meditation time is constantly trying to push the world out because it has its life of its own and we want to keep momentum. And so my answer to this, sorry, that was an extremely long-winded answer. My answer to this is, it's always an open question. It will always be an open question. And I think leaving it as a kind of hot red iron ball that you can't swallow and you can't spit out is where the real dharma happens. You don't want to be totally cut off from the world. You need to be engaged with the world. That's how we integrate the dharma into the system. But you don't want to be totally lost in the story of the mainstream culture because the mainstream culture has lost its freaking mind. So you need the dharma to keep you rooted in what's truly most true. And that tension is, I would say, contemporary Buddhist practice. All right, podium aside, sorry, I really got going there. Go for it, Devin. I'm gonna add that I kind of think we're like terrible people to answer this question. Because if you hear in Craig's story, there's a lot of like, wait, I'm a monk. No, wait, I'm a psychologist. No, and this is the life that we live. I'll just tell you, last fall, we were both in solitude and we, for three months in silence. And we were writing letters to each other across the country. I was at Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. He was here in a cabin in Oregon. And I will tell you, his letters, not just one, several, told me, informed me, that he was going to become a monk full time. <laughs> this was like his passion. He was so full of joy. I had my own process to digest that in retreat. But now we come out, we're in the world, we're working. He is gonna be a psychologist, start a private practice. So we always are really living some version of this question. And I, I sort of feel like we have a clunky way of doing it. I know many other people who, for example, use Saida Utejaniya and his teaching style in terms of your life is your practice. Every moment is when you wake up. Nowhere else, not in a cave, not in a retreat center, just right here, right in the spin. And that narrative is quite inspiring to me. Um, so anyway, just to say, there's many different ways, I think, to answer that question. And we're just doing kind of a messy job at trying to figure it out right now. Thank you for outing me so publicly. I really appreciate <laughs> that. That ties into a question that just somebody just asked. And they say it's a burning question. So I mm. think maybe this can be the final one. Uh, burning question, hearing your story today. What role does your relationship play in your lives? Mm. That's a really good question. <sighs> so when we first met, 
I was living at a Tibetan Buddhist retreat center um, in Southern Colorado. And Craig was a monk in his Zen monastery. And the first time we met, we talked about how I said, you know, I take refuge in the three jewels. I don't take refuge in relationships. So I'm not really good dating material. <laughs> and he said, yeah, the Sangha for me is my one top most 100% priority. I'm not good dating material either. And I think that was when we're like, okay, well, maybe this could maybe work. <laughs> you know, if we hold the Dharma in the center of our priority. And it's always been that way, you know, when the weekend that we got engaged, we went to look at the three-year retreat land to think about maybe we could do three-year retreat. Um, yeah, I guess in its best moments, I feel like I have a witness to my uh, awakening. And man, that is so precious. Like, so lucky to have someone so close by to watch like all the fumbles and know all the edges and all the ways that I need to grow still that I keep messing up and who still somehow sticks around, you know, who's like really witnessing that process. And that's a great honor and a, really a great privilege actually to have that. And then there's all the other times where, you know, we rub up against each other and we just want to go away and have space. <laughs> you know, spend lots of time apart and all the friction that that comes with, right? Different levels of renunciation and what do our different practices look like and comparing mind and all of that, those difficult things. But I really will say it's quite an honor to have a witness to my own, my path. And I hope that I can do that for him as well. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great question. And, uh, I think all those edges, the ways that we rub up against each other, that's, that to me is the Dharma. Uh, sometimes I think um, being in partnership is the ultimate mirror. You know, in the, in the Tibetan tradition, there's four gurus, there's four, four um, faces of the guru. And like one guru would be like your main teacher. So for me, maybe that in the Tibetan tradition, that'd be Minjirin Pache. Uh, another guru is the texts that you study. Another guru is your internal uh, compass, your Buddha nature. And the fourth guru is the guru of phenomena, the way that life arises for you as a mirror to your own mind. And there is no more powerful mirror for your own mind than your beloved life partner who just won't leave you alone. Who's <laughs> just there, you know, so we've been together for 12 years, right? And that, that mirroring, that, that sense of having my own positive qualities mirrored back to me, which Devin does beautifully, a lot of love, a lot of warmth, a lot of generosity, and also all of my, excuse my word, but all of my bullshit put right back in my face. What could be better than that? You know, what could be better than the unequivocal challenge of somebody telling you just exactly how limited you are? Mm, now that is tasty. 
you know? It's great. That's the guru of phenomena. That's, that's the opportunity to grow. So I would say that we could say many, we could write a whole book about this question. Maybe we will. But we're coming, I think, near the end of our time here. We are. I had just a quick message, and we probably should at least name the title of the chapters and explain why we named it How Not to Be a Hot Mess. So we'll just do that quickly. And I also was thinking I could read a little bit from it, um, just oh. a short bit. Um, so we basically have six chapters, and they follow the precepts and a first chapter on meditation. So in each, we sort of, we bring in science. And so we look at like, why is meditation helpful for us? And then we rephrase the precepts. So first chapter is meditate. Um, second chapter, let me find myself here. Don't be a jerk. That one's about not harming. Third, give a little, right? Or not taking what's not freely offered. Number four, say what's true, wise speech. Number five, make sex good. And that was my chapter to write. Um, we could give a whole Dharma talk on that. Maybe we will at some point. And then chapter six, stay clear. And we really talk about how staying clear is kind of the fulcrum of all of these, you know, about staying clear. So don't be a jerk, give a little, say what's true make sex good and stay clear. So maybe I'll just read the last, not to give it away, but I'll read you the last paragraph, sort of sums it up. All right. Here's the thing, the big take home, the spectacular reveal, the message with a capital M. You too can do this. It's not just for fancy historical figures or people who write books and give TED Talks and share wisdom from the mountaintops. You really can stay clear, say what's true, give a little, make sex good, meditate occasionally, and be less of a jerk and more of a stable, loving presence in your world, right in the middle of everything. Even when the shit is hitting the fan, your housemate is on drugs, there's a global pandemic, there's no leadership, <laughs> just editing a little bit in here, your job is a mess, your romance is shaky, and you don't know just exactly what you want to do with your life. Right there, in the middle of it all, you can find a little seclusion, do a little meditation, and reset your compass. Okay, you might say to yourself, as the two of us often do, I don't know precisely exactly what to do, but I know who I am. I know what matters to me. And what matters to me is kindness, compassion, real friendship, doing good for others, contributing, taking care of myself, taking care of everyone I meet, and deeply knowing my experience in each moment of every day. Life lived like that becomes very immediate, very rich, and a whole lot more workable. So let the storms rage, let the waves crash, let the winds shriek and the demons sing. 
because right at the center of the blizzard of stimulation that is modern life, and even with all your confusions and imperfections and sneaky little doubts, you can still place your hand on whatever patch of ground you're sitting on and say, today, in this moment anyway, I will be a slightly less dysregulated hot mess, a semi-still point in the spin, a builder of kindness and a bastion of decency, or maybe I'll just shoot somebody a flyby smile and call it good. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Devin and Craig, and uh, just feeling all the uh, the years of commitment to Dharma practice and uh, just how it's mm, trans transmuted uh, through you into uh, into offering with um, with depth and with uh, with playfulness and joy too. So. Uh, Thanks for coming, and uh, just want to mention that uh, that they put, Craig put uh, his their PayPal up on top. Um, you can see it there um, at the top. I have my my PayPal and Venmo, and uh, really been appreciating people's support. And also, um, Craig uh, put in there. Um, their website, devinandcraighaas.com slash our new book, if you want to check out the book. So um, lovely to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much. Maybe I'll come back sometime. And yeah, thank you so much. I'm just going to say, really stay in touch with us. We love to be in touch with people. So you're welcome to, to find us online and, and um, just a lot of appreciation for each of you and your questions and your your dedication and your love. So, thank you. Thank you. So, Eve, do you like sharing anything? Oh, I, I thank you, um, Devin. Thank you, Craig. That's wonderful. I will. I think maybe we can just do a spoken dedication tonight, James, because it's another time. Okay. So, let's. Um, Feel how uh, sharing and, and uh, the Dharma and meeting together um, touches our hearts and let it collectively share a great ball of merit. And may all of our connection and commitment and dedication to becoming more conscious beings, uh, may it ripple out and be shared uh, for the benefit of all and for the planet. May all come to peace in their lives. May all come to healing. May all share their love well. And they all benefit from the truth and love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.